Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the series within Let Me Tell You Something's podcasting empire, in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross, taking in turns, picking match from the wide history and world of wrestling in order to discuss, look back, reflect, renew or maybe even enter an entirely new world that we weren't knowledgeable of in the different areas, times, and periods of professional wrestling. This is a follow-up to uh, a cross-pollination, I guess you could almost say. Mm. within the. Uh, it's, it's a crossover within the, let me tell you something, podcasting universe. You could say, this is the Tamako of the Let Me Tell You Something universe. Maybe. I was going to say it's more like those episodes of Buffy where Angel turns up and then Buffy turns up in the next episode of Angel. Ah, okay. I won't say which one of us is Buffy and which one of us is Angel. But. <laughs> Sorry, the silence was damning. <laughs> As a follow up to our most recent Silver Screen Visions, Simon, what are we talking about today? We've done a little bit of a naughty, because this technically isn't match of the week. This is technically episode of the week, as myself and Lorcan have decided to cover not just a specific match. But an entire episode of season one, I think season one, episode 24 to be precise. I think it's 22. Sorry, 22. Apologies. Of the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. So we watched the drama series that the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling promotion and the subsequent documentary that came out in 2012. And now we're watching the original source material, I suppose. Seeing where it was similar, seeing where it was different, and also seeing what a show where everyone involved has had, I won't say minimal amounts of pro wrestling training, but limited amounts of pro wrestling training. I think that's fair to say, yes. So we we were lauding up to the you know to the heavens the how great the first season of Glow was. Really, like I like if I was to rate it, I would give it like a strong eight to a light nine as far as the seasons of TV go. I don't know if that sounds about right to you or... That's around my ballpark. And so watching this, I mean, I have watched the documentary, so I was a little bit aware of it. I'd never watched a full episode or a full match of Glow before this. So that puts you slightly ahead of me because I haven't actually watched the documentary yet. I'd seen some little clips. I remember there was a... The clear thing about this is it was wrestling as variety show. This was someone who'd watched the WWF under Vince McMahon. Because one of the things I actually did in the build-up to this was I just looked around and watched a couple of clips of Tuesday Night Titans, which was another kind of variety show vision that Vince McMahon obviously had for WWF back in when he was starting up the national expansion. Yeah. And in that, the show is presented like a late night with Johnny Carson, basically the Johnny Carson version of The Tonight Show. Ah, yes. Complete with Vince having his own Ed McMahon, no pun intended there, in Lord Alfred Hayes. And they would show matches that were on tour, but they would also bring in wrestlers and it would be like showing this different part of their personality. Because that's the whole thing. That's what you got to realise. In Vince's eyes, he takes wrestlers and turns them into superstars. Yes. 
And the way that he did it back then was mostly comedic, to be honest. It's so funny watching it back. Because I got into WWF around the early 90s and then the gradual transition to Bretts. And then the transition from the new generation into the Attitude Era. And the humour was definitely greatly reduced in importance. If you look at Glow, you can see that what they're following is the template that Vince set up with Tuesday Night Titans, with a lot of the backstage stuff on Saturday night's main events. And that was, again, Vince trying to do, like, Johnny Carson. He's trying to do SNL. He's trying to do variety. He's trying to do sketches. That It's Vaudeville! He's trying to do Muppet Show. I think that's what he sees wrestlers as. He sees superstars as Muppets. They really do. Like, they're all in different colour schemes. They're all in different looks. And they've all got something unique to them. And they can come together as an ensemble. Like, if you watch the, the 37th Annual Slammy Awards. Yeah. Where they're all turning up in different gimmicked vehicles. And then they do, like, literally all the wrestlers are miming that they're playing musical instruments. <laughs> Heels and faces. And that's similar to the start where... Or pretty, I imagine all of the roster of Glow are in the ring uh, doing the, the the very classic 80s, and we're going to see a hell of a lot of it, both in Glow and outside of Glow, in the adverts that we saw as well. Sing rapping. Yes. It's a lot of, my name is Lorcan, and I'm here to say I'm a podcasting guy in a rapping way. <laughs> I say a rapping way, word, word. <laughs> And so forth. They also clearly mirrored the WWF's setup of the insert promos as wrestlers are making their entrance. That was all over the place mm. in the old days. They they bring it occasionally back. I remember they did it when Colt Cabana debuted as Scotty Goldman. Yeah. He did a little insert promo and he goes, Whoa, I'm in the ring now, but I'm here as well. <laughs> and then he lost to Brian Kendrick. <laughs> there were a few... Um... A few times in the noughties, or the early uh, teenies, or whatever, or the tens, where they definitely did that. Got an Ezekiel Jackson one seared into my brain for some reason. It was during the whole people power Teddy versus uh, Johnny thing. I mean, it's a good way to just establish a character whilst they're making their entrance, which obviously that does some of it, but you don't need audio to go with that, really, other than maybe hearing the crowd cheering or booing for that particular wrestler. But that, this is clearly what they did. They took these these women and they gave them their gimmicks, similar to that scene in Glow where the ring announcer, who's very clearly the inspiration for the ring announcer character in this, who was also the guy who founded Glow. Yeah. So that's another thing that they've taken. Uh, this the, the announcer, though, was not from money necessarily. I don't think he was. But he was a lifelong wrestling fan in Indian, Indiana. And he was in charge of the Dick the Bruiser fan club. <laughs> And that guy made a connection with Dick the Bruiser, who was running the Indiana Territory. And so he was brought in and eventually became an announcer and everything. And he pitched this idea to Dick the Bruiser. And being an old, you know, tough as nails, yeah, you know, bites rocks for chewing gum, you know, <laughs> sort of guy. He, he wasn't interested in it. And obviously, because of the sealed shop that was women's wrestling in america in that time and obviously there's the whole dark side of the ring episode about the fabulous moolah that yeah kind of covers that he basically had to start from scratch and boy can you tell that these are wrestlers that were starting from scratch i tell you what it was watching it was really interesting because you know how we always say that like if you do a bingo of our shows if you're doing the five star matches in particular 
we, we so often say connective tissue. Yes. Like links within matches. This, there's like not even tissue. This is like like a pile of bones have been scattered onto them. <laughs> well, quite literally in this case, because in um, the first match, Matilda Hun throws a bone yes. at a member of the audience. Yes, that is true. Very good. But what I'm saying is that in basically every match, it's clear they've learnt to do one or two moves. They haven't learned what to do between those moves. Oh my god, oh my god. California Doll in the first match is a prime example of what you're talking about. The amount of time she was just like stood there. Yeah. Well, that was also the awkwardness of the gimmick of the match. So let's go into them. I think I'm go- I am going to list the main event of this as the one that we'll talk about. Because that was the one that was given a 20-minute time limit. Yes. And that was the one that also involved who was at the time the GLOW champion. So that's... That's the match that I'll list as our match of the week, but we are talking about all four matches on this because each of them have something interesting within them. Yeah. But yes, this first one is a handicap match, and it's really your classic... You know, like, you can tell this... At the very least, people involved in booking it know how wrestling works because this is your classic building up a monster character because mm. Matilda the Hun is billed as being six foot three. She's a large woman. Again, it's like trying to think of her equivalent in the um in the in the T V series. I guess she's somewhere between Welfare Queen and Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu, but not quite maybe she's who Machu Picchu thought she would have been made to play. Yeah, yeah, I think that yes, yeah, yes, you're right. That's it. That's exactly it. Because I will say as well, one thing I noticed, I mean it's it's all eighties moosed up hair and everything and like ridiculous levels of makeup and it's not the most high definition of video quality we're watching you light a match anywhere within five blocks of that arena and you could have took out a small nation (laughs) and maybe the nation that palestina comes from (laughs) (laughs) we will get to her (laughs) but it seems like the majority of the roster is a lot more on the conventionally attractive end of things like as far as the proportion of the roster goes Mm. That they they probably did place more emphasis on the gorgeous aspect than the TV series does. I mean, it's the first letter, so why not? <laughs> yeah, but it is like a lot of quite buxom ladies, very thin. Yeah, like dressed up and, and all that, but in the eighties way. I mean, we'll get to it in the next match in particular. But yeah, the, so this match is Matilda the Hun in a handicap match against the California Doll and Ebony. Yeah. Now, if those names don't evoke what probable demographics <laughs> those two women are going to be in, I don't know what what to tell you. Very, very Ron Seal characters. <laughs> yes. They've already established, it seems, that Matilda the Hun is like the big evil monster that you put in the undercard. So she's being pushed similar to how... Braun Strowman was being pushed in when they did the big roster split and he left the Wyatt family, or how Omos was being pushed. You put them in against one jobber, then you put them in against two jobbers and three jobbers. I mean, in fairness, I don't think either of these women were jobbers in the sense that, you know, they're named characters. Yeah. But, you know, people being built up and pushed and kept strong and everything, I don't think was high on the list of priorities in this in this promotion. With the exception of one or two people. Yes, that the are being pushed like... Sort of like the season finale, I suppose. And we'll talk about another one of those later on. But they play it, they definitely play it for comedy. I mean, they literally... The two women come in dressed as 
Matilda the Hunt. The idea is the character is so established that you can now come in and, and dress up as her and mock her. They gave me, I think it's because of the matching wigs, but they gave me a little bit of beat down biddies vibes. Yes, that is true, yes. Not quite the same, like, comedic-wise, but, you know, like, tag team, like, oh, you know, we're going to take the mick kind of thing. As we were saying, that uh, the women were trained by Mundo Guerrero, who I'm 95% sure is the referee in all these matches. Mm. So that he can be in there to guide them through what to do if they lose themselves. And I think yeah. he probably has to do that quite a lot in the whole thing and just keep things in order. You know, similar to how Pat Patterson was made the referee for the WrestleMania 1 match with Mr. T and the WrestleMania 11 match with Lawrence Taylor. So, if needs be, he can explain what they need to do. Yeah. It makes sense. And the man was like booker, road agent, referee, like a wrestling great. Get get all that talent on site, basically. But it's so funny, there's this one bit. Now, do you think, there's a moment where she grabs one of the girl's legs, like the California doll's leg in one arm, and Ebony's leg in the other arm. And I think what she planned to do was do a double half crap. Yes, I thought that's exactly what she was going for. The problem was she couldn't figure out how to do it based on how they were lying there. Yeah. Obviously, I guess the way you could do it is if you tilt it up and up so it was kind of like how Jericho turns it into the lion tamer. Yes, yeah. But I think what she wanted to do was turn them around. But if you turn one around, then they've got to literally crawl on top and over the other person. In order to do it. It's an awkward moment because they, they're having to sell it like it's an ankle lock. But all yeah. she's doing is she's not twisting or talking the, like the ankle. She's just holding it. <laughs> yeah. I did like one bit where Ebony, I think, is going for a hip toss and literally like almost judo style. Yeah. And Matilda's blocking it. And so the California doll literally comes over and pushes her over. So you see the move, how it works for them together as teamwork. Mm. And I think there's also another version of that the other way. But yeah, for the most part, it's Matilda pulling one of them by the hair and the other one just sort of standing around awkwardly not knowing what to do. Yeah. It's like it's like an early Royal Rumble bit. It's it's very obvious that A, the wrestlers don't know where to be, and B, the camera crew are not skilled enough to hide that. Yeah. But it's just your classic big monster moves like throwing them into the corner, double avalanche. She puts one up in a torture rack and then just drops them. That is one thing I will say. <laughs> like, some of the way these women are dropped, it does feel almost Nia Jax-esque in the lack of care and attention to guide the other person's body down to the mats. That they are just like, I'll pick you up at the highest level possible and then just drop you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've shown off my strength for you figure the rest out. <laughs> yeah. And she even does, like, baby face moves on to uh in like handicap situations like the double noggin knocker and oh i did my heart did like warm up a little bit when i saw the noggin knocker well you can never you know there's nothing wrong with the double noggin knocker exactly uh obviously except for you know potential double concussions but imagine getting like tomohiro ishii and katsuyori shibata and doing a double noggin knocker to them you probably do it and then they continue to headbutt each other Takes her an age to stack them up appropriately to do a double pin. Yeah, yeah. Where she and is. also, technically, she should have been pinned after move one. She, in quote marks, kicks out by getting the one on her shoulders off of her. But the one lying across her like stomach still like, on her for another couple of seconds, and that should have been a free. <laughs> yeah. And also, uh, one note I said, not sure what the double clothesline is supposed to have been. 
Early on, they go for a double close. Oh, no, I think she does a double clothesline. One of them goes to the ground, and one of them just sort of stands there. Yeah. It's so weird growing up on just basic level of wrestling. Like, you watch a match between the fucking Warlord and, like, proper gassed-out Davy Boy Smith. And, you know, it's just boring power moves for the most part. But you realise what just, like, base-level competence is. Yes. It's like, me and my mates found out that... Our, one of our old PE teachers, and um, for some reason we have multiple PE teachers trying to make it in the entertainment industry in their late years. <laughs> one of them has recently become shockingly successful at that, but that's for another time. But one of them, we found he had an IMDb page, and he'd done a short film where he's the Prime Minister. And the level of acting is so bad that it just, like, it, it almost doesn't count as acting. And like someone was saying, like, when we watch it, you, you appreciate just, like, even... Things that aren't to your taste, like soap operas. Yeah. Okay, there is genuine talent involved in those people. There is, like, it's not bad acting. That's not bad acting. This is bad acting. Well, that was the first match. Should we talk about ads or should we save that for afterwards? I think we do the ads at the end. Okay. Because I'm still not decided what my favourite one is yet. It's a two-way tie. So next we've got kind of the two ends of what I think you would think about with Glow. One is... In Palestina. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. Like, I don't know they allude to it in Glow. They do have the whole, like, let's not be, like, you know, black people beating down old ladies. So they do the whole clan thing. Well, there's literally an Indian-American character that they say, yeah, you're an Arab. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. She's, like, uh, um, she's got, like, obviously her Indian nana who, like, you know, makes her, you know, rotty and all that stuff. But no, you're an Arab. <laughs> That's another one where there's a real clear... There's uh, The direct comparisons, that is one of the most obvious ones to do. I mean, it went further than I expected it to. It was more offensive than what WWE did five years later. Well, in many ways it was, in many ways it wasn't. But it's, to me, it's more offensive than what they did with Sergeant Slaughter and General Adnan and Colonel Mustafa. Now, that was Vince taking advantage of an actual war where people were actually dying. So, admittedly, that's different. But I don't know. I mean... Palestina. I was going to say... There have been other similarly short wars involving that. I don't know if one of them was active at the time in 1986. But, I mean, at no point did they actually have... Well, I think Hamas were active in 1986. (laughs) And I also think at no point in in their run did either Sergeant Slaughter or General Adnan or Colonel Mustafa literally put a Muslim prayer mat on the ring mat and start praying to get interrupted by the good old baby face Susie Spirit. And then they they spinal tap the racism by dialing it up to 11 when Susie Spirit immediately goes for the smelly Arab trope. Yeah, and gives her deodorants to use. Yeah. But again, to say it's funny with Sergeant Lord Colonel Mustafa and all that because clearly... Mondo Guerrero was like, well, obviously I'm teaching this woman the camel clutch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I immediately thought, do you know when we talked about Evil Foreigner episode, that I, I got so many flashbacks to that watching this match. Now, I will say, Palestina, I think, was actually trying really hard. Out of all the people that got involved in this whole thing, I think Palestina was one of the three ones that I would say... Over time, she could probably be a decent wrestler if yeah. she's given all the time and the lessons. She's going for it. She's trying it. She applies the camel clutch perfectly fine. Yeah. You know? 
And just like the whole like rake the face like heel variation of it as well. Like if you if you were to say what's the quality difference between the Iron Sheik's camel clutch and Palestina's camel clutch, well I'll say they are close to each other in quality than Bret Hart's sharpshooter and the Rock's sharpshooter. <laughs> you you are always going to like stick up for your boy Bret on that particular issue, aren't you? It's not so much sticking up for Brett, as it is taking a shit on the rock. <laughs> hey, everyone's got to have one flaw. Come on. Now, Susie Spirit... Ah, yes. Now. ...is very spry. She reminded me of early Kelly Kelly. Lots of flips, lots of handsprings, not a lot in the way of actual, like, wrestling nows. But, but... To be fair to Susie, I don't think there was a lot of wrestling nows on display throughout the show at all anyway. <laughs> I think the whole thing was Susie probably... Well, Susie was actually quite successful before going into this. She was a showgirl at a major Las Vegas hotel at the time. So she was maybe doing whatever show it is that... Uh... Yeah, she's incredibly acrobatic. Yes, that's what they said. They said, wow, she, she's very tall, very thin... Very flexible. Very flexible. And they're just like, do that, and then we'll build moves around it. Or, if all worse comes to worse, do a flip and land on her, if you can. Do the splits and land on her. And that's all she does. Another thing that's funny, because I think they cast quite tall women in a lot of these. It seems like pretty much every woman in this is quite tall. But that also might be partly down to the fact that the ring ropes go only up to about four feet yeah. Like, there are times in different points, especially in the last match where I saw them, when they're running the ropes, they're having to literally, like, take, almost take a dip on the knee. Yeah. Whereas, like, obviously in the WWF and w, in those rings, they're so big and so, the ropes are so strong, that very it? often it, it doesn't even look like the women, when they were running the ropes, especially when they were before the, like, NXT period, they weren't even really being encouraged to lean into them. They were just sort of stopping pressing their back slightly against them and then just running. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's a, a nice, easy way to make, make your women look taller. I, 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 I don't, considering the, the production standards, it's literally a coin toss, whether it's deliberate or not, probably leaning towards not deliberate, but hey, it's a bonus. But this is another one where they're just falling over each other half the time. Palestina loves a gore into the corner, doesn't she? Yeah, she does love head-butting people in the stomach again and, and all that stuff. Again, I wonder if that's like classic uh, foreign heel moves, you know, underhanded. I'm not sure. Um, but she's... Is it it's basically... I think it's like like irrational, like, charging. Yeah. I think What's it's in... like that part of the foreign heel. What is important is that Palestina plays her gimmick up and Susie flips around and shows how flexible she is. She does like that, you know, that Matrix thing? The Matrix, uh, yeah, like Bray Wyatt-style crab thing. Yeah, but it was like, she seemed to be taller than most people. She's about as tall as Mondo Guerrero just from that pose. Oh, yeah, you could, like, a, a, an eight-year-old could ride a trike underneath the arch. So, yeah, Susie knows how to move around. She just doesn't really know how to hit people. Mm. She she has a decent spin kick, but that's just like that is a very showgirl esque move anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, I think this is the first of many times because I don't think we saw it in the Matilda the Hum match. But there is an airplane spin, and the spin moves are 
out. You know, it was like the reverse Rana of 1986 <laughs> women's wrestling. The airplane spin, in many ways, the reverse Rana of the time. <laughs> what a sentence. And, and another thing, I mean, this one as well. I mean, so Susie's character is meant to be that she's just like a rah-rah cheerleader, basically. She comes out literally with sparklers. And so she has sparklers. So what does Palestina have? She has, she has sand. She throws, uh, yeah, she... yeah, and camo trousers. So she's yes, dressed for the occasion. And as we said, a Muslim prayer mat. And she throws sand at Susie. Susie dodges it. It hits the ref. And I think in maybe the only time I've ever seen this, the ref calls for the bell and disqualifies someone. Yeah. It didn't make... And you just feel a bit like a mug. Because normally the ref would be like blinded out for like 10 minutes, like bottles of water being poured into his eyes. Whereas like this one's like, ah, what are you doing, you, you bitch? Out, get out. <laughs> so here we go. Now, again, just as we were saying, Palestina's got a very clear equivalent. This is the most obvious like-for-like move in the next match, which is Ninochka against Sally the Farmer's Daughter. And it turns out if you're a farmer... You you have a slight case of being simple. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is very clearly meant to be the character from the Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, she's literally got the hair exactly the same and everything. Oh, of course. They aren't even trying to hide it. And also, what Goldie Horn was playing in the older, I think it was called He Haw. They made fun of it in the Simpsons episode with um, Lurleen. You know, with the whole cast, including Big Shirtless Joe. <laughs> Uh, I was watching that episode earlier today. Uh. So yeah, Ninochka is very clearly what Alison Bree's character is based on, to the point that the dress is almost exactly the same. The only difference is that whilst in the TV show, in the Netflix series, it's the all-American blonde woman against the evil brunette Russian woman. In this one, Ninochka's blonde, but the reason for that is pretty obvious, that they're clearly basing the character on... A combination of Ivan Drago and Bridget Nielsen playing the wife of Ivan Drago. I was going to say, that's basically what that is. Also, it has to be said, obviously, because the, the, the season one of Glow was working up towards one wrestling card, which we saw at the end. Uh, with the exception of, like, the little show they put on to the network guy in like, the couple of episodes prior. Whereas this is clearly, like, like we say, this is episode 20-something into. Characters are established at this yeah. point. And we're very much at the part of the story where this person is being built up to face Americana. Yeah, this is Ludwig Borger challenging Lex Luger. This is Nikita Koloff challenging Magnum TA. This is Rusev challenging John Cena, although technically it's John Cena that challenges Rusev in that regard. Yeah. It's just... Like the Matilda the Hunt thing, build up the... I mean, I don't think Sally the Farmer's daughter gets anything on her. Uh, she gets... She climbs on her back. That's it. She tries to lock in a sleeper. Mm. And that's it. And so Ninochka is just utterly dominates her and says, I don't even know why I'm bothering to wrestle this stupid girl. And... Well, she's not interested at the start. It's like, what, 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 what have you bought me? What is this? Well, she grabs Sally by the hair and Sally doesn't seem to be doing anything about it either. I know you're playing up the simpleton thing, but, you know, you could have done it like a, a Forrest Gump situation where you just say, hit her. She does. And she's amazing. <laughs> okay, Jenny. Interesting fact. Do you know who they bought the rights of Glow from? Sally the farmer's daughter. 
she owns the rights to Glow at this point. She bought oh. it sometime in the early 90s. Nice. So not, no, well, the character's simple, but she's not. not. Not this woman, necessarily. One of the things I was confused at, were Russians known for smoking cigars? I thought that was more of a Cuban communist thing. Well, this sort of links into side sidebar the book i'm reading at the minute which is abyss by max hastings which covers the cuban missile crisis and this is what the late 80s early 90s so mm. well this is 86 yeah 86 so we are 24 years removed from the cuban missile crisis and it did sit into people's minds just how like it in the eyes of some americans just like how nefarious or shifty i'm not saying these are the right words i'm saying these are the words that maybe people thought about cuba because it's like uh yeah we're gonna let the russians set up um basically overlooking your backyard and and you know cope with it kind of thing so i think it's i think it's a to link with that because cuba's their nearest communist neighbor so it's a nice easy trope yeah, well, it just was strange. I was like, that, or maybe I'm conflating the fact that I'm just reading reading Abyss by Max Hastings at the minute. Yeah, you just want to let us know you read a book. Well done. Just because I did it earlier doesn't make you clever. <laughs> well, no, but like uh, to America because Russia is so far away. They're like the unknown, whereas Cuba kind of isn't. Maybe, but it wasn't even a big Cuban cigar. It was like a sort of. It was more a cigarillo. Yeah. Yeah. That's just odd. And that's just so weird as well. It's like when you watch Mad Men and like everyone's smoking. It's like, God, we just never see anyone do that on telly now unless it's a period. I swear at one point, I can't, I don't know what, I can't remember what match it was, but I could see that familiar smoker's haze in the crowd. I don't know if it's the camera or I don't know if people are, have got like, you know, fat, like um, cigarettes on. Sorry. They are in Vegas in 1986. So I'm guessing. <laughs> it's a bit of both. <laughs> yeah. This was the one that had this in the second and the last match had the most crowd cuts that I saw, like crowd cuts independent of what was going on in on the telly, uh, on in the ring. So I think that there was a lot of them just saying, "Okay, now for this shot, we want you to do this," because there's a moment where they just all like almost in synchronization stand up and cheer, and I think that was like, "Yeah, come up and stand up and cheer," and you know the applause thing, yeah, flashing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. there wasn't this, that wasn't necessarily the match that was going on the in the ring when they asked them to do that, or there might not have even been a match going on in the ring when they asked mm-hmm. them to do that. I do wish because the fans are are up for it; they're loving it. There seems to be one slightly larger, middle aged blonde woman that I think appoints herself ringside valet at some point. Oh, I yeah, yeah. Like during the um, Susie Spirit match, yeah. I'm sure she's there. Yeah, she's there on ringside at one point. I'm like, I'm sure Susie didn't come in with a manager. Yeah. Be like the green shirt bloke just hopping over the railings. Don't. Which you know he wants to do. Don't. We do not. No, no. We don't, we don't give oxygen to green shirt. That would take too much effort anyway. Um... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this is just a complete squash. Absolutely uh, class finisher. Uh, well, Looks the backbreaker. Devastating. Yeah, where she lifts her up over her shoulders in a gut well, they wrench. Call, they call it what an inverted bear hug kind yeah, of. Yeah, again, he's like loads of his moves are like reverse versions of things because it's like, well, that wasn't really the move that it should have been. So let's just say it's a reverse version of it. <laughs> it's like how Matt Striker claimed everything in a submission match was a modified version of a submission hold. Uh, no, it wasn't Matt. It was that submission hold. Stop acting like you're clever. Oh, oh, he was the worst. Although this announcer wasn't much better. I just genuinely just sort of blocked him out. 
the the audio level wasn't a thing. I think that's also the, the problem with any solo commentator. If they don't have anyone to bounce off of, yeah, it's, it's ve- just very hard work to commentate solo. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's such a one sided beating that she literally gets a drink from the crowd, just grabs a drink off of someone afterwards, and just throws it in Sally's face. <laughs> She runs a mouth then, guy, basically calling out Americana. So we've got our um, our Glowmania match set. Yeah, well, it is clearly like as close as in a parallel to Liberty Bell and Zoya the Destroyer. It's almost exactly like that, but as we were saying, that the hair colors are swapped over, and you know, and. Well, to be fair, Ninochka's pretty much as broad as. I mean, we see her in a sketch where she's on the phone with someone saying that they're doing research into uh i can't remember what oh uh geological something or other and then it says oh i'm going to a rock concert to see the rolling stones and so your next mission will be on a freight as an anchor (laughs) there are i know this is what you're referring to with the whole johnny carson thing there are a lot of vignettes all around like crap jokes Really crap jokes, but it's like, how aware are they of the crap? I think they obviously are aware of it, but it's like, it's so unappealing. I just like, just do good. Like, they, it feels like even the can laughter is like, uh, like even the can laughter is not that energetic. (laughs) I'm mindful of, um, the Simpsons, was it the Simpsons spin off Spectacular, where the last one is their variety show where Lisa chooses not to appear, it's replaced by like a, like a, a blonde teen um, cheerleader. Because you have um, Tim Conway as a beaver, you have um, Jasper doing the lollipop song, Smithers doing Licorice Whip. Yeah, it's, it's wrestling as variety. It, it took Vince's vision, and it's just, I'm going to do that but with attractive women who can't really wrestle. Let's see if this works. And for about four years, it did. They can't really tell jokes either. I don't... There there are moments where some of the vignettes sort of get over who the characters are. The Sally one does. It's like, I ran into a hat salesman, you know, because he wanted me to come up to the room for a nightcap. And then she drinks milk in our Vegas hotel room. It's like, you you are really hammering home the farmer thing here. She's drinking it from like a wine glass, isn't she? It, it, yeah. The, the humour is tongue-in-cheek, so obviously they know that the jokes aren't good, but it's like, it drags on for so long as well. Yeah, because the reason I bring it up is because it's after the ad break, after the, um, after the, the uh, Russian ladies' match. I can't pronounce, it's Colonel, but I can't pronounce the surname, the other bit. Uh, there were so many vignettes in Corporal this Kelly, show. I think it was, Corporal Kelly. Oh, no, 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 that's the next match, because it's Corporal's the American one. Uh, the Colonel, the Russian one's the Colonel. Well, that's Ninochka. Ninochka, thank you, that's what I was looking for. But what I'm saying is, after the Ninochka match... There are so many vignettes. It's so long. Well, they go back and forth. Yeah. It's something cut. No, I think what it was, it was a parody of those Agony Aunt columns, isn't it? Where she's saying, uh, can my husband make a living as an artist? And she says she knows a guy who paints people all day for the gents and the ladies' toilet signs. And uh, is it okay to kiss my dog? Yes, you should do, especially after all that petting. And that was my next note. Even the canned laughter is under-amused. Ah. Um, so then we cut to Tina Ferrari, who is the best-known person to come from all this, because that was one Ivory 
in the WWE in the late 90s, early 2000s of right to censor fame and, and other things as well. You know, she was the women's champion at WrestleMania 17. It's like, only person, I think only woman to get a pinfall win over China. Jeez. So, uh, the hair, she does, like, the hair is so different though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so she's also doing an advice thing, and she says, in order to get the man you want, or the woman you want, send a sexy message no, saying what you want, you want to get from the man them. You want. The man you want. And then the next letter that Ashley gets is, is a man getting in touch a with her. Message, yeah. Trying to. So I think it was meant to be a maybe this isn't very good advice because look what would happen. But then you know? it's about different genders. It doesn't really work. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't make sense anyway because, like, in the time between that sketch ending and this sketch starting, someone yeah. writes the whole thing. Think about it, Simon. Think about it. The show's smarter than that. Is it? <laughs> What should I walk at the aisle to my, at my wedding? What song should I do? Not having my baby. That was okay. Mm. And then you got the farmer's daughter. Literally in a hotel room in Vegas, you see the Vegas skyline yeah. coming in. Because in the third season of Glow, they are in Vegas, but they aren't a TV show. They're like an ins- you know, they're like a right, right, like the showgirls. They're, they're their own live show, and they're just doing the same show over and over again every night. Whereas this, they've they've like rented a space out to mm-hmm. film the TV series. Ashley and Tina are talking about Ninochka turning heads and stomachs. <clears throat> it is weird, though. I think, also, I think Benny Hill might have been a big inspiration. Do you know what ruins that joke even more? Is the one on the right takes an absolute age to put her hairdo visor down. Yeah. Well, that's also a classic thing, isn't it? Women sitting around with the big things on their hair. Yeah. I don't know what they're for, really. Was that from the... Per- is that our perms? Yeah, so very 80s. And now we're on to our main event, Corporal Kelly and Attaché against Tammy Jones and Americana. The dynamic of this is weird, and it's it's not within the actual match itself, but considering like the very obvious uh, Russia is the enemy thing that they, they literally put on in the previous match, you're then going to have heels come out who are American troopers. That was, that was the interesting thing, but that, to be fair, that has always been the case with wrestling, that Army characters can be both faces and heels. Sergeant Slaughter had very successful runs even before the Iraqi turncoat, where he's the sadistic drill sergeant, and that got over huge as a heel act, and then you turn it around, and they're the Patriot. And this is the one time where I think maybe there's a bit of that 60s subversive message underneath Hmm. that they're actually trying to get by portraying the military, American military waving the American flag as the heels that it's the wrong idea yeah and we we enter a really weird flag versus cape off at the start well that lasts for a little too long <laughs> so yeah americana is as we were saying just liberty bell comes out in a red white and blue but brunette though yeah sort of bodysuit i suppose yes but brunette as you were saying and she is the glow champion at the time i can't remember if she was wearing the tiara because it was a genuine like that thing that they've literally lifted. If she if she was, she didn't have it on for very long at the entrance. Yeah. And her partner was Tammy Jones, whose whole thing was like a strawberry shortcake. Is that what it's called? Just giving out sweets to kids, little little girl thing. And and a former champion. Yeah, and they're giving the kids things. Tammy's giving them sweets, and Americana's giving them flags. That's what you do: get them fat, docile, and patriotic. 
That's how you control the populace, Simon. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I won't. No. I was going to say, no wonder Hitler had his meetings in beer halls, but that's too far. <laughs> yeah. Please don't make me march. I'm full of chocolate. Christ. <laughs> but even the commentator says it, a contrast of, that was one of the only lines I wrote down. Uh, a contrast of American diplomacy. Mm. I don't know if maybe this was at the time of the Ollie North scandals, maybe. Uh, Reagan, 86. Yeah, yeah, we would be around Iran-Contra at this time. Yeah, dueling flapping of flags and capes. And Kelly, again, like, she's not of, like, a Matilda the Hun size, but she is a bit bigger. But obviously, the, she kind of reminded me size-wise of, like, ODB. Do you remember from TNA? Yeah, yes. Like, the commentator even observes there's a lot of meat on her. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of meat still strewn around the ring after the opening match, but there we are. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, again, they keep it caught simple. There's giant swings, there's airplane spins, there's all that stuff. It seems like the whole idea is that Corporal Kelly is tough, but Attaché, her underling, is a bit useless in comparison. She's the junior member of the New Japan faction who takes the fall in the tag team matches. Are you saying Attaché is basically Masanobu Fushi? Yeah, she's Yo. <laughs> she's Master Watu. Yeah, okay. She's Bushi. <laughs> Attaché is the one that I will put up there with Ninochka and Palestina as the ones that actually seem to have the most energy. There was some actual not bad technique to her submission holds and... She, she Her movement in the ring seemed a bit more confident, a bit more like traditional, the way you should be moving around in the ring in like large-ish strides and, yeah. you know, keeping that pace. Whereas, like I said, so much of the time it's doing a move, shuffling awkwardly around the ring for a bit, sidestepping, not sure where you're supposed to stand. And then Mundo reminds you of what move you're doing next and then you do that. <laughs> the only problem I have with this match is Atashe made me think about VAR. Because there's there's massive inconsistency in the rules, right? Sand is an instant DQ, but someone gets a billy club out and hits their opponents in full view of the referee, and that's fine. <laughs> well, you know, it was the main event. He was given more leniency. Oh, I hate that croc. It's it's been lent on <laughs> way too much. <laughs> and more leniency is you don't start a count when they're brawling on the outside. Not someone like hits a fucking billy club. Uh, Tammy does a second rope crossbody. That was a fairly big move for this show. I mean, again, because the ropes are so low, it's sort of like about the same distance that Tyrus covered when he did his uh, bottom rope, whatever it was. <sighs> but the well, one thing that like they're trying to do the traditional tag format in many ways of like holding off from the tag. They do, yeah. But sometimes the other t- opponent will tag out, not because they've been able to momentarily stop their opponent, but their opponent's just been celebrating the move yeah. they've just done too much. But <laughs> the other one gets in. But they do do a hot tag. And uh, Americana does come sprinting into the ring and drop kicks Corporal Kelly off the r- apron. But then she just mostly dominates Attaché for about two minutes and mostly uh, back and forth with her taking the lion's share. And then she just pins her. <laughs> Yeah, with like some sort of weird... They call it a reverse sunset flip, but it's like a very slow Canadian destroyer. <laughs> they were ahead of their time. <laughs> Do you reckon this is where Petey Williams saw like this? And was like, you know what? I'll go for this. 
I love also, because you were saying with the Billy Club, that was an attaché doing that. And, like, her two big heel moves was to hit was to hit Americana and Tammy with the Billy Club and then to just squeeze Tammy's nose like the school bully does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what you do to your younger sibling. You know, got your nose. Ah. And, like, she, that, she does put on a very long headlock. So she does take her, so like Kevin Owens does, she did take us to Chinlock Village. But like I said, Attaché was at least trying to wrestle, it seems. I wonder if she was someone that was actually, like, studies the tapes and tries to do more stuff. Yeah. But when you're the only one out of four, it seems, who takes it that seriously, you're you're fighting uphill. I always love it when they do moves that, like, the slam or something, and it's so awkward how it lands, and it's like, wait, that was a move? Like, she sort of does a backslide, but then Attaché lands on her feet, but then sells it like it was a slam, and she's hurt. (laughs) It's almost as if they're not that good, Simon. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Initially, I, I got optimistic. I'm like, is she going for a gory bomb? But then, no. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, literally the dad of the gory son was in the ring with us, so they could have. Yeah, I don't think they'd have dared try. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, and I think we've come to the end, really, of that. And then we have another, we have the... The rap that was on at the start of the show is how it, they do it over the credits. Yeah, um, after a couple more se- uh, sketches with Mount Fuji and another woman, the bad man of the team, their breakfast cereal goes snap, crackle, and burp. I don't know. It's about as funny as most SNL sketches, to be fair. So, And they don't stretch it over seven minutes. No, well, no, they just use loads of little vignettes instead. So, yeah, this has been an experience. I wouldn't I wouldn't binge watch the whole series. But it is fascinating seeing that reaction to the cultural zeitgeist and the cash-in. Like when, when a boy band suddenly becomes big and then you get all the clone boy bands after that and then you get the ones that do, like, the subversion of it. So it's like if Spice Girls are going to go this way... Spice Girls are going to zig, then All Saints to stand out are going to zag. You'll get all the Spice Girls rip-offs, and then you'll get the ones that do the subversion of it. So, it's like, if okay, if this WWF's popular doing this, how can we do enough of it that we can fall into their slipstream but have a unique selling product? Well, we can't afford top-quality wrestlers, so get let's get loads of out-of-work women in the, trying to get into the entertainment industry. Give them basic levels of... I mean, they let's face it, they had a steady supply being um on the west coast ish revel in the it's so bad it's good aspects of it play up the camp play up the humor and you know give them enough women that like horny boys that aren't getting enough with just miss elizabeth have can attract them in that regards because at the time i think at that time like every other nightclub in america was promoting mud wrestling on the you know and all that so that thing was popular at the time do you know what i think because they leaned into like yeah we're not that good with it it's all gimmick kind of thing i think that's why we're a lot more forgiving of it than we were with world of sport yeah and also it's campy and silly and colorful enough that it can also try to attract like a family audience but there's stuff in there to you know one for the dads was how me and some friends used to always (laughs) put it you know but also with World of Sport, we had a little bit of a dog in the fight because we wanted Brit- Brit- something good to come out of British wrestling, but they were. Yeah. One of the things I was really happy with this discovery, though, was that we got to watch the ads were on as well. So to just get a sense of... Because in the show, they're, they're trying to get sponsorship deals. And so just seeing what's being advertised in the 1980s, you know, America, where it's all... The whole thing you were told was, like, the commercials. There's as many commercials as there are the, the, the TV. And, and also, they don't... 
And they don't indicate when it's going to go into a commercial break. It just suddenly turns up. Yeah. And even the thing that always amazed me was that they would do commercial breaks before the end credits. And this is what you had, you know? What do you think was the best advert you saw? And what was the wildest advert you saw? I'm just looking. So I'm just going to write out the, the ads that we got. So these were the ads that I wrote down. There was um, a laser watch. <laughs> what made it a laser watch? A Woody Woodpecker hotline, which seems to be calling Woody Woodpecker and he'll tell you about this movie involving a dinosaur. I did not know what that was advertising. Yeah, and he burst through the dinosaur's head like alien. It was it was fucking weird. But what was fascinating was the thing that was most prominent in these ads was either cars or car parts. Yes, yes. America is so built around the car. So there was ads for Chief Auto Parts, the Audi 4000, advertising blatantly based on how Top Gun was made and that Tony Scott, Ridley Scott school of filmmaking that Michael Bay and and, uh, Zack Snyder were influenced by in later years. There was also ads for 7-Eleven and various things that you can get at 7-Eleven. Sparklets bottled water. Oh my god, that was such a good advert. That's one that's in my top three. They seem to advertise people having like big water cooler things in your house. Yeah, that's what Sparklets was. Because his his tap water was so smelly he couldn't drink it. That was that was the detailed plot of the advert. In fairness, in parts of America the tap water goes on fire when you turn it on, so you know Or kills you. Yeah. Oh, the walls are melting again. Personally, I think I'm overdone. <laughs> um, the one that I recognise, though. See, I went, I went for a Flint reference, and you like went for a Simpsons reference. We, we, we—that's zig and zagging, if ever I could call it that. The one that re- repeated a couple of times which was Downey's fabric softener. I'm sure I saw parts of that ad in the UK because what they'll do with a lot of those things is they film stuff and then you can insert it into the different markets so you can film it so that half the time the people who are talking their mouths are covered or barely moving so you can dub it into the different languages so i think i might have seen that whole ad uh, especially i can remember like the cross comparisons like a normal washer normal towels when you don't use this fabric softener they're all thin and reedy but they're all fluffy and lovely if you use this detergent i'm pretty sure i saw that ad or parts of that ad in the english equivalent of that ad do you know what's really bad for that kinder buenos and uh, any any kinder advert because we've blatantly got the german version and we've just spoke english over it in the uk haribo as well was that was yeah yep Yep. It was also funny when you see ads where they at least imply that this is like the owner of the company that's doing the ad, and very often it is to save money. Like standard shoes, the competition made us do it, which is a weird thing to brag. Like, if it weren't for other competitors, we would have given you a much shittier product. <laughs> At a much higher price. But we're here now, aren't we? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> but if we consolidate all of our companies over a number of decades, then you won't have any choice! <laughs> We've got the advert with the evil mufflers. Yeah, mid mida-sized mufflers. That's the ones, that's the one. And then there were ads for oatmeal raisin crisp. There were a few breakfast cereal ads. Steinlager. A divorce lawyer. Yeah. I began to wonder if I had any rights, said a man in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> 
What I was going to say is when you mentioned oatmeal, one of my favourite lyrics of like any jingle ever is, look what we've done to oatmeal. <laughs> well, it's like Alec Guinness in The Bridge Over the River Kwai. What have I done? But yeah, even more uh, f- car-related ads, you've got Discount Tire Center, Suzuki Samurai 4x4. Map of America. To quote the Simpsons, uh, we uh, Springfield, we uh, believe your T eight hundred is working perfectly. Oh dear God! Oh no! This can't be happening. Top of the line of utility sports. Unexplained virus is a matter for the courts. Canyonero. They were advertising the all no all new Yugo from Europe. Yeah. <laughs> There was a there was a life plan mag- like a, a magazine within a magazine with a psychologist giving her endorsements. Uh, Princess Diana was on the cover. Uh, Burger King advertising their late night drive throughs. Cracko with their beeperless answering machines. <laughs> <laughs> Paper mate rollerball pens. Oh, t- there was something that like um, really highlighted inflation. I, it was that AMPM burger advert. Two burgers for 99 cents. I'm like, how far we've fallen. And it's that whole, you know, getting randos from the public coming in and saying how much they love it, including the security guard. I would have loved it if he was doing that. It was like three shops were robbed in the time that he was. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Simpson, whilst we were saving your husband, a lumber yard burnt down. Oh, lumber has a million uses. 7 Eleven advertising that they had a pack of Bud Light for $8.95. Bic, Bic lighters for $1.99 and Farmer John hot dogs for 99 cents. The big dollars, like you could get a $2 mail-in rebate. So it's basically like, if you do it this way, you can get some free lighters. I enjoyed Taco Bell advertising their steak fajitas. Yeah, they they went for it with that advert, didn't they? <laughs> that was like one of the more classier ones. You know, that was, yeah. reminded me of those M&S. This is not just any old whatever. This is not just any fajita. This is a steak fajita. <laughs> I love that there was one of those exercise ones, ads for the gut busters. And yeah. this sounds like it could have been in the 50s. Because, like, ladies, if you're as serious as he is, that flat stomach you had in high school can be yours again. Yep. <laughs> yeah. There was a NASCAR driver advertising peak. Uh, not a NASCAR driver. That was Dale Einhart, who's a legendary NASCAR driver. Wasn't that the guy that Meltzer compared Mitsuharu Masawa to? I think so. Yeah. Yes. But whenever I see any NASCAR driver advertising anything, I just think of Ricky Bobby, you know? <laughs> Hi, I'm Ricky Bobby, and I drink Red Card Energy Drink. If you don't drink Red Card Energy Drink, then fuck you! <laughs> So Dale Einhart is a dynasty. Dale Einhart Jr. is the most recent one. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so this is basically not Jacques Villeneuve, Jules Villeneuve. Yeah. But this is the. Like, so you were saying which ad um, stuck in my mind the most, and this was the one for me, which was the Crush Drink. There were two different ads for it. One was for the apple juice, which was at a high school prom, and the other was for the orange juice, I think, that was in, and they were, like, playing in the, they were in a pool party, young hip kids. But the thing that got me was their big advertising campaign was 10% real juice. <laughs> what the fuck is the other 90% of that drink? The answer to that is corn syrup and speed. <laughs> All right, legally, that's not the answer, but it may as well. Mountain Dew water and crab juice. 
Crab juice, please. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just, I love, oh, man. American adverts are always fascinating, but adverts in general, period adverts are always fascinating, I think. Yeah. Not in the, where they do the cup of blue liquid period ads, I mean, but the... uh... (laughs) Adverts of the time. Adverts of the time, yes. So, Billy's going to get you. Isn't that, like, 20 years old now? I have no idea. The one that uh, I was reminded of on Twitter was uh, Mr. Soft for Trebor Extra Soft Mints. Oh! <laughs> we've always... <laughs> oh, no! Mr. No, Soft! Why does everything... You might be too young to remember that. Yeah, I thought you meant a different one, where um, it's a son going to his dad. Dad, y- you know how we're a strong mint? Yes, we've always been a strong mint family. Dad, I like soft mints, and they like me too. No! <laughs> To go back to a classic one from your bingo cards, like my TV's not really been tuned in for most of my adult life. Bloody hell, you've, you've, you've reached deep into your back of tricks there. That's your burning hammer on your bingo card. That's your to an extent. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't really, I haven't really seen ads. And like, I went over to my dad's uh, the other day and he was talking about like all the Christmas ads, like it's a big deal. Because he's like one of those people that still watches linear TV. <laughs> you've never sounded wankier than when you've said that phrase. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell you what I did see, actually, just recently. I saw an ad for a 1-800-collect number with Stone Cold Steve Austin and D'Lo Brown. <laughs> so this was in 1997 or 98. And Austin's all upset that D'Lo didn't call him on the 1-800 number. And, that, and he's acting like he's a like a, an upset lover. <laughs> and he throws D'Lo Brown out doing a giant swing actually <laughs> callbacks bringing it all hey. full circle but I mean if you want to see an example of 80s Americana I mean you've got it you've got the reflective version of the TV but this is like the pure uncut snort it hook it to your veins <laughs> 80s Americana if you want to watch that no one has mixed baby powder into this this is proper deep dive into the lore this is fucking reading all the the fucking appendices in the lord of the rings and the silmarillion if you love glow so much you do i was gonna say (laughs) so i would say watch some of it don't go in watching good wrestling but just as a as a historical document you know yeah it's fascinating it's like it's like it would be a great dvd extra feature if they'd have put just a random and this would have been a good episode to put on if they don't, I mean, I'm sure that Netflix do do like DVD Blu-ray releases of some of their originals, but it's kind of like, what's the point? I mean, yeah. as we've said, if Netflix goes away and dies and no one buys up a lot of their archives, then there was a genuine point, and those things might suddenly skyrocket in value, like they're a limited edition Criterion Collection Laserdisc. But you know, <laughs> you're bitter about the fact you had to go to the Neaton CEX for that. Well, you know, if anyone has to go to Nuneaton, they're going to get bitter about it a little bit. But, you know. Brilliant. <laughs> Russian art. I don't know why I rushed to Nuneaton CEX. Because, you know, Nuneaton, they're the really going to be a rush to watch a Criterion collection of a 1979 Russian art house science fiction film. <laughs> they know their market there, don't they? <laughs> um, You never know. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dunneaton, did you give us George Elliot? You've never fucking said anything about it, have you? <laughs> Jesus Christ. We haven't had anything else. <laughs> Larry, oh, tell a lie. Yes, we've had two. Larry Grayson, 
and Mary Whitehouse. Not exactly an A-list lineup. <laughs> None Eaton does actually have two really good directors. Well, one really good director and one quite successful director. You've got Shane Meadows. He's actually from Nuneaton. He does all his stuff in Nottingham, but he's originally from Nuneaton. Okay. And you've got the guy who directed the Godzilla movie, the 2014 Godzilla movie. What, the Brian Cranston one? Yeah. Yeah, that guy, the guy who directed that is from Nuneaton. Bloody hell. Where he came up with ideas for visions of desolate, destroyed wastelands of uh, where once humanity may have lay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I swear Ken Loach was linked with Nuneaton. And if you want to talk desolate wastelands, like you just watch Kez. Jesus. Oh my God, the devastation of this place is awful. Godzilla hasn't turned up yet. It's atrocious. <laughs> he smashed another Poundland. <laughs> He pounded another Poundland shortly. Little uh, sidebar with Nuneaton. The Poundland there took a battering after the 99p shop opened. Uh, I mean, that, that's a big deal. That's a big deal there. <laughs> you know? I mean, this joke's less funny now we're in a cost of living crisis. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, now it's like, are we going to the 99p store? Maybe for your wedding. <laughs> 33 cents though, just the stock being poured in off a lorry. <laughs> or as I like to call it, the Team K Max approach. Anyway, if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, to talk more about Nuneaton and the general desolate wasteland of the poor parts of Warwickshire, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of evil foreigners there were in this episode. And you can't do it for airplane spins, because there were more than three. Yeah. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A in Americana, N for the N in Nanochka. I honestly thought you were going to go A for the A in airplane, and N for the N at the end of spin. I honestly thought you were going for that. Well, that's for a later episode. But that was my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. For the next episode, assuming there are no more five-star matches in the interim, we will be back to match of the week. And Simon, what is our next pick for match of the week? As far as levels of wrestling ability, it's very much one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> Although I think it might be in the same year. Ah, funnily enough. Uh, we are going to the AWA, where we are going to watch an AWA title match between Nick Bockwinkle and a pre-Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. Fun little fact, actually. After Glow dissolved, basically for a lot of the Glow women, the first match they wrestled after Glow was on an AWA pay-per-view, where they had a street fight lingerie battle royal. <laughs> Which was won by Palestina, who by then had been given the less subtle, if you can believe it, name of The Terrorist. Oh my Christ. And that was also Ivory's last match until she came back for one match in Herb Abrams UWF in 1994. (laughs) We haven't done any Herb Abram yet, have we? I know, we should do some. Oh, Christ. We should have the squash match with one Davey Meltzer. (laughs) Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, we've got to. Or there's the there's the match where this young up and coming star was put in against Steve Williams, and the legend goes that Herb Abrams suspected that he had sex with his wife, so got Doctor Death Steve Williams to beat the shit out of him. Oh, so there's there's stuff there, you know. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a Dark Side of the Ring episode. For, uh, I, I can't imagine a lot of our listener base hasn't watched Dark Side of the Ring, but there's a good episode. But yeah, that was so crazy, just looking at Ivory. 1988, she, 1997, she wrestles her last match for Glow. 1988, she's in the Street Fight Lingerie Battle Royal. 1994, she does a match for uh, UWF. And then 1999, she comes back to feud with Deborah in the WWF. Like, that was literally her whole wrestling career in between. It wasn't a great time to be a woman wrestler in the 20th century in America. (laughs) (laughs) That, That small period of time. But anyway, there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next one.